Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. In 2017, Trevor Claiborne and his partner Ashley Smith formed Black Soil, a Lexington-based agritourism organization to help reverse the underrepresentation of minorities within Kentucky's own agricultural community. The organization works to connect agricultural producers with consumers from across the state through a model that includes events, tours, and workshops at Black-owned farms in Kentucky. The organization also spearheads other promotional efforts, including newsletters, social media outreach, and helping push forth new images of the modern-day black farmer in America. And Ashley Smith joins us today on Think Humanities Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that introduction. It's so nice to uh, to put uh, your name with this organization and uh, you and Trevor sort of the face of uh, of Black Soil. And the best way to start, I think, is uh, for you just to tell us about Black Soil. Absolutely. Well, Black Soil is, as Mr. Goodman stated, an agritourism business based here in Lexington, but we operate statewide. We have traveled to about 10 counties. We launched on Barber's Farm in August of 2017 with a handshake and a lot of faith as Andre basically laughed us out of his farm shed um, as we shared our vision of what could be if we concentrated intentional investment and marketing and promotion of these underrepresented farms that we know exist, that are within our communities, though they necessarily don't always receive the focus and the visibility that they need. And we put together our our respective skill sets, Trevor with his marketing and background in hip hop and music and media and mine in event planning and really working with people on their goals and coaching them through to success. And we said, Mr. Barber, please give us three dates. And he did, and we didn't sell one ticket to Mm. that first event in September. And we went back to the drawing board to our 200 uh, guest invite list and did some very intentional asks. We want you to come on this journey to see people holding on to this tradition that many of us have run away from because it's painful. It's it's so deeply painful and traumatic when you think about agriculture and farming and in the lens through the lens of African Americans. So through our farm tours, we were able to connect people directly onto this farm. And that model was perfected and honed and refined. And we were able to expand into counties such as Bourbon, Madison, Lincoln, LaRue, Laurel, um, Logan County, Adair, Todd, Taylor, we're just continuing to move throughout the state with such strength and vision and enthusiasm. Mm. And once people started getting a taste of ag, they have tapped into something they can't get enough of, really. Did any, uh, did either of you have a farming background or an agricultural background? So Trevor is the one coming to the partnership with the farming background. He has advanced degrees from the Kentucky State University, focused around food systems and agriculture. And while he was doing his studies at Kentucky State, he developed a research model um, under the moniker of Farmer Brown, the MC. So he used this animated character 
um, that communicates using hip hop influenced media to teach kids about where their food comes from. And so when we met, um, I obviously never act as if I'm a farmer, but I really have worked with people throughout my career, groups of people such as artists, servers, different food um, service workers, in helping them collectively move through their goals. I'm a sociologist by trade, and so that's the emphasis that I bring to the partnership of really focusing the micro and the macro and making sure both of those entities are working in tandem and well for each other. So you are, and mentioned a couple of these things, but uh, dividing these up, and we'll talk about them sort of separately, the farm tours, farm-to-table dinners, and off-season workshops that you coordinate, and those are the invitees that you were talking about a minute ago. So let's just start with with farm tours, mm-hmm. and uh, who's invited or who's interested, and uh how do you, what do you do on a farm tour? On the farm tours, we have so much fun. We have an opportunity to highlight these oftentimes marginalized producers on their land. So we come onto their land and we offer um, an honorarium. Everything that we do is about economic inclusion and structural incorporation. So the farm tour allows our oftentimes bougie, middle-class, professional, um, our average attendee ranges from 30 to 60. Uh, oftentimes we're heavy on the baby boomer side, uh, retirees. They come out self-transportation. Sometimes we group transport through Gold Shield, but we really just allow people to break away from the hustle and bustle of the urban life and be immersed. When we say our better nature, it's being immersed in the great outdoors. It's being one with the land and reclaiming a narrative. And so on this farm tour, our farmers are able to take people around their operation because we want that empathy to be evoked. We want people to be able to see themselves in in other shoes, um, as well as see themselves reflected in the story of agriculture. Um, We wrap in the farm to table dinner to further enhance what they've just seen on the operation to not only thank the farmer, and understand the toil and the the hard work that goes in, but see themselves as their family supporting local businesses, these local farms, these small family-owned businesses. So there's a lot of interconnectivity of here's the objective and now we want to have some action that carries us through. Who's responsible for the the dinner or the food? Well, we initially had um, Andre Barber. He wanted to show off his culinary skills. So our farmer on our first three events um, prepared the farm to table. And we learned very quickly the farmer leading the tour and preparing the meal is just Mm -hmm. way too much. Mm -hmm. So again, that was a part of the refinement process. So we added in a culinary artist track. Um, When I was doing some outreach in 2017 and I've been tracking it since then, I I saw an, an enormous amount of black owned restaurants in Lexington closing left and right. And there was, there wasn't any um, anyone stopping in to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, working in restaurants for over 13 years, they are it's a lot of hard work, and mm-hmm. they are very um, capital um, reliant. And so, by creating a, a path and carving out space for underutilized culinary artists, we've been able to introduce these practitioners to working with local food, in addition to showcasing their love for African-American foodways with our larger audience. So it's a win-win. It takes a lot of pressure off of our farmer and allows them to really focus in on 
what they're good at and their expertise, and that's farming. So is the chef, I assume, uh, using uh, product from the farm that people are visiting? Yes, that farm in addition to the network of farms that we work with. We obviously know everyone um, has diversity within their crops and that they produce, so we wanna be able to feature as many of those operations as possible. So with that, we're continuing the economic development of the tourism because again, when you take people out of their comfort zone, you know a safe way to do that is through food. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we allow people, we, we practice this mantra that food connects us and that art tells the story of those connections. And so another path that we've added on in the 2019 um, season has been working with makers and artisans and being mm-hmm. able to tell these stories from the land in, that, in these very unique types of ways. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you do that? Do you, do you take people to uh, an artist workshop or just explain how that? Well, um, we showcase value-added products. So we say this person, this vendor has taken a raw ag material products, so on and so forth, and they've created something extraordinarily beautiful. Mm. So we work with people who have hemp oil-based body product lines, popcorn, all kinds of different things. And as we move forward in 2020, we'll be adding in visual artists, musicians to our events to help, again, create Mm. a sense of experience and to further break down barriers for people. And then the other, um, the third leg of the stool, off-season workshops. Tell us a little bit about that. Obviously, that happens when you're not doing the tours in in better weather, spring, summer, and fall. So we wanted to keep the conversation going. We knew three dates and then just dropping off was not going to be an effective strategy. Our community engagement approach is year-round engagement and empowerment around this topic, around this industry. So we bring, we invite our rural-based producers to the urban area Mm. and we have them meet consumers on their turf and when we first launched in 2017 um, we hosted our off-season workshops at the wild fig and we outgrew that space so in 2019 um, we moved to the lyric theater who is one of our strategic partners and we love what they're doing over there and they've been so gracious in helping us in so many ways Um, And those off-season workshops create a concentrated opportunity for this farmer to exclusively stand in front of a crowd and pitch their operation. Not only are they pitching their products, but they're selling themselves, they're selling their brand. And that's one of the things that we work to cultivate these opportunities for leadership. Standing in front of people is very difficult, much less talking about yourself, talking about, you know, rural people are very, very humble. They do not like talking about themselves. So it's taken a lot of coaching to say, you're not pointing necessarily to you as an individual. You're pointing to the power of, oftentimes these people are fourth, fifth generation. So the the legacy of the, the farmers who went before you and how you're honoring that tradition of maintaining. So it's it's been interesting. We have people now coming to us. We were searching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember praying and being like, Please, Lord, send me some other black farmers because I can't keep going back to Hart County. <laughs> you can only do yeah. a farm tour so many times. Yeah. And that's been the beauty. Uh, word of mouth has been one of the best things for us in finding additional farmers, being in the right place at the right time. Um, so that's how we are able to 
execute our mission. Well, one of the reasons that you might have had a difficult time finding um, black farmers is because of some of the numbers that I pulled off of your website, um, representing 1.4% of the primary farm operators in the state, which is not very many. Uh, black farmers account for less than 600 of the more than 76,000 agricultural operations in Kentucky. Now, I don't know, are th- those numbers uh, 600 uh, that's, against 76,000? So yeah. And that's where I challenge the, the, the statistics because mm-hmm. when I've been out in yeah. the field, like looking for people, either uh, one thing I know is people are hiding, you know, the history of black farmers in regards to the USDA and the discrimination and the cynicism and people being run off of their land through racialized violence would cause one to be very cautious. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of underreporting and perhaps overreporting. So what I do is I choose to um, embrace the people that we have been able to make contact with and continue asking for increase and expansion for more and more producers to come to the surface. A couple of things uh, in that that area of, um, of African-Americans being um, shunned, if you will, or not included. In a couple of statements here, uh, you, you write, or Trevor said, uh, the more we got into it, we started realizing there are a lot of different factors as to why there aren't uh, a lot of African-American voices in these spaces. Uh, we tried to make a more solution-based approach to address some of these issues. And then also, especially in Kentucky, so much of the wealth and industry and the current economics that you see in this state were generated through slavery. Absolutely. So, Ashley, talk to me about how uh, in 2019 and 2020 you traced that all the way back uh, to a time when, of course, uh, Kentucky was uh, not the leading slave state, Mm -hmm. but uh, what, the third or fourth in the nation at that time before the Civil War and and leading up to the the war? Tell me a little bit about that history and what mm-hmm. you what you know and and how that has been uh, how that has affected uh, black uh, farmers in Kentucky from just that era so many years ago. So, with the 1619 project produced by the New York Times, there has been a larger national kind of spotlight being placed on black agriculture. And and actually explain that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm familiar with the 1619 mm-hmm. uh, uh, project and it's fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, especially for uh, those of us uh, who are supposed to know history and 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 either weren't taught that or weren't taught that the emphasis it's and the New York Times did such a great service. So so uh, to tell us about that reference. And so to to piggyback off that last point you made about history and knowing your history it's really really easy to rewrite and re-envision what actually happened when you look at the historical documents of um, Kentucky and different rural counties enslaved labor was the basis for the success the production the harvesting Um, so the New York Times created this multi-genre there was there's a podcast there's curriculum there are all kinds of documents that lay out the 400 year i guess 
story and mm-hmm. journey of African Americans. Yeah. So August 25th, 1619 is the denoted date in which the first enslaved Africans arrived to Jamestown. There was a kind of cash-strapped Spanish, um, you know, explorer ship that stopped in this dock and sold off, they say, 20 enslaved people. And that was the kind of beginning. And when the international slave trade ended in 1775, in 1776, you have the Revolutionary War because the Southern colonists swung back and said, we're gonna Mm -hmm. come on board with our Northern counterparts Mm -hmm. and push back against, we need these people for Mm -hmm. labor. Mm -hmm. And so again, when you look at where we're at in uh, current American times and you analyze farming and agriculture, you have to take it all the way back to slavery because African-Americans who were enslaved were so intimately involved with the production of agricultural crops, the harvesting, um, the making of clothes, the making of grain, cooking the food. A lot of American cuisine was birthed out of plantation kitchens, foodways. Um, And so what the 1619 Project is masterfully done is it packages this story of African-Americans and the continued struggle towards not even equality, but equity. Um, And they do it through telling these beautifully told stories about agriculture, music, and all of the influential pieces of American culture that were, that stem from African-American contributions. So when we talk about history, I'll, I'll break this down. You can look at a lot of our national historic houses, Monticello, Mount Vernon, Montpelier. Locally, we have Ashland Henry Clay Estate, Jack Jewett House, the Bibb Mansion down in Logan County. All of these individuals gain prominence politically in a time where it was completely acceptable to dehumanize and commodify people. And ethically, that wealth that was generated from the Jeds and the Miltons, I'm doing a lot of work at Ashland right now, and I'm looking at the ledgers, the hint-breaking ledgers. Mm-hmm. People were working in the fields in January, in early February, in like 1841. Like mm-hmm. they weren't wearing any yeah. heavy duty. So the evoking empathy of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And long story short, that DNA, that trauma lives in our DNA. And so when you broach people to share about their experience, it oftentimes is still harkened back to the sharecropping and still harkens back to just lack of access, being ignored for government subsidies. So a lot hasn't really changed. Slavery obviously is illegal, you know, the whole loophole with the 13th Mm -hmm, Amendment, but mm -hmm. um, I truly believe if we want to see American agriculture change and a lot of people come back to farming you have to include the real true equitable Mm -hmm. balance story well i think a lot of people are now uh, realizing and learning um, from a number of uh, publications Uh, i I just heard uh, tanishi coates talk about uh, monticello on on a podcast uh, just this last week when uh, the interviewer said uh, she wanted to talk about um, Monticello and, and, and Jefferson, and he said, oh boy, are you ready to, <laughs> you gonna strap it on and let me go? And because he, um, he really gets um, 
uh, I think, insulted, and he really tries his best in front of a, a, a live audience. Uh, this podcast was taped in front of a live audience to explain very much what you just explained, that oftentimes history does not paint the truer picture, or if it is factual in what you do learn, there's so much left out. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he makes an example of that, and, and you, you can do that. You maybe are... Are finding that out with it's about uh, duality. Yeah, it's about duality. It's about understanding. I'm not here to demean this historic figure, mm-hmm. but I also don't have to ignore mm-hmm. the the life mm-hmm. and the family and you know just the day to day that people didn't get to experience because their birthright their birthright excuse me was slavery enslavement. So tell me how then uh, from from that. Um, do you see a, a, a dwindling, or, or maybe, and uh, this would be a question, have there been uh, fewer black farmers in, in the, the this century and then the last, I mean, have they been, have they been, been less all along? Decline. So steady at the, decline. At the turn of the century, there were 15 million acres farmed, and 15% of the overall farmers were black farmers mm-hmm. at the turn of the century. So at the turn of the century, it's post-Civil War, post-emancipation, and as you continue to progress, you have the institution of sharecropping, mm. that again, there was no liberation, there was no ownership of the land. Then you continue that on with government-sanctioned discrimination post-70s, 80s, and 90s, which then led to that Pickford and Glickman uh, class action mm. lawsuit against the government mm-hmm. in 2008. That settlement that still, I mean, that whole rollout was just awful. No community engagement. People still are, are in need of their checks and stuff like that. Um, but locally, in spite of the, the national numbers, we are seeing a resurgence of our under 40 young people wanting to come into farming, that they're finding barriers to accessing land, which across the board, that is an issue. What, what kind of barriers? Cost, um, being able to find land that is, you know, good. Outside of Fayette County, obviously it's much more affordable. So people who are used to growing up in an urban area, contemplating what it looks like to live in a rural area, that's a that's a huge life change. Um, so we encourage people, young people who are interested to meet these older landowners and develop relationships where you can lease land for from people who have a mutual experience and who understand where you're coming from. Um, do you see then through some of these efforts, uh, younger people uh, under 40, becoming more interested in uh, living off the land, um, increasing. uh, And as you well know and have learned, farming is very difficult and sometimes very dangerous Dangerous, hard. It's thankless. I mean, every single time we sit down to eat a meal, like there was, there is a family Mm. attached to every single product on that plate. Um, And so, Working in community, working co- through collectivism, where folks know that they have a support system and they're not all alone. We have seen, we've we've bo- we've had the chance to bear witness to an organically, 
organic community that has developed mm-hmm. of people who never ever interacted with each other have always been farming in their different counties they're coming together to say hey i want to sell x amount of chicks or i want to sell x amount of cattle to you for your slaughterhouse and i want you to be able to retail it on my behalf and then we're going to bring that revenue back and creating their own like outlets amongst the network so I think that has definitely been a highlight and a bright spot of seeing people coming together to say, okay, I thought I was all alone in this, but I'm not. And they're, they're reaping courage. Give me a, a real quick portrait, if you will, of one of the black farmers that you visit and uh, if he owns his own land, uh, her land, uh, the family support system they have, uh, how they acquired the land, did they, did, was it in their family? Just talk, sure. talk a little bit about a... So I'll speak about the Millers in Lincoln County. Um, Susan and George Miller are both fourth-generation farmers, and they, um, Mrs. Miller is originally from Wayne County, and that was actually one of the farms we visited this year in July, Hutchison Produce. That's her family homestead. Mm. So she moved to Lincoln County and started going to a church where her now husband was her now husband's father was the pastor. So you have these two black farm families, multi-generational, living about an hour and a half from each other, have no clue who the other are. Long story short, they now maintain about 10 to 12 acres in, outside of Stanford. And so Mrs. Miller procures her um, diverse row crops at the Lincoln County Farmers Market, where her and her husband are staunch, strong leaders within that organization. Their daughters, who are in their 20s, have grown up farming, and they work the farmer's market on behalf of their parents. Uh, Mr. Miller's side of the family, he has multiple siblings who still farm in Lincoln County, as well as Mrs. Miller's family, the Hutchinsons. They are continuing to farm in, in Wayne County. So the Hutchinsons in Wayne County have been on that land for about 50 years. And it sounds like from, again, the oral tradition is very strong. And that's how we've been able to track a lot of this information. Um, but their grandfather purchased that land. Um, and it wasn't a sharecropping situation. He was able yeah. to purchase that land. And the millers on the land that, in which they sit on, that was something that they were able to purchase and coming together. Mm-hmm. So we have people who have um, inherited land. Mm-hmm. We have people who are fighting to access it. We have people who are fighting to stay on their land through um, resolving bad loans when they've not really had the full depth and breadth mm-hmm. of knowing what and what not to do. Um, and there are people just all over doing things in the urban communities in Louisville, um, doing urban gardening and workshops, mushroom ID hikes. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of diversity, not only within the African-American culture, mm-hmm. but we're showcasing the diversity present within agriculture itself and what's possible. Uh, one of you, on, again on the website, um, said um, that you, you noticed a lack of positive imagery of African-American farming. Mm-hmm. What, what was the negative connotation that, that some people placed on African-American farmers? Well, it's always in a slave movie. It's always Roots or 12 Years a Slave, Mandingo, which is like, you know so much exploitation and if that's the only way you're seeing yourself why would you want to Mm -hmm. take up 
that call. You know, we call farming. We refer to farming as a calling, mm-hmm. you know, the highest calling. Mm-hmm. And it has created such a barrier to entry. If I'm not going to toil in the field all day for free and be disrespected, have my family ripped apart and separated, um, be subject to physical and sexual exploitation. So there are a lot, again, trauma pathways as to where, why and we have reached this point. And so again, to be solution-based, you have to see it to believe it. And again, when we started reaching out to people in August of 2017, I received so many emails back of like, what do you mean they're black farmers? And these are from fellow African Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so also looking through mag- Kentucky-based magazines, tourism guides, mm-hmm. the African American tourism experience is just very absent or just people living their lives, you know? Um, so we really work to provide positive images mm-hmm. and that's through the event pictures and positioning people and their products in a way that is uplifting and respectful and full, filled with dignity. And I just heard uh, or just became familiar with the uh, the Black Bourbon yeah. uh, group uh, mm-hmm. that, that is operating. And also through that, uh, some conversation about that, the first uh, African-American female uh, master distiller. Is that correct? Uncle Nearest. So, yeah, Yeah. I can't wait to go down there. That's so exciting. Where is that? It is... in Tennessee, I'm going oh, to get the name wrong. Probably oh, that's okay. Lynchburg, yeah. Tennessee. But okay. Uncle Nearest, Vaughn Weaver and her husband, she um, did some research. And this was maybe five or six years ago where she discovered Nearest Green was the person who taught Jack Daniels the mm. recipe. And locally, Jack Jewett House in Versailles. Shouts out to Susan over there at Jack mm-hmm. Jewett House. They're doing, they did an archaeological dig. And they were able to uncover the early distiller, the first distiller at the Jack Jewett house. He, I believe, enslaved 23 people, um, was an enslaved person. And so uncovering Mm. what is so central and pivotal Mm. to Kentucky, equine, Mm -hmm. don't don't even get started with that. Mm -hmm. And then now we're understanding more and more, um, because culturally, when you think about slavery and labor, it was socially unacceptable for a white male to do a lot of the things that would have cultivated these discoveries and innovations. So um, it's very exciting to see this national movement. Um, And so I look forward to reaching out to Rob and the Kentucky Black Bourbon Guild to do some collaborative um, events so we aren't just siloed, you know? Is that... um it's not only helpful that those discoveries in that history that's either been forgotten or lied about or covered up or whatever is now being uh, discovered in a way. I mean, that, surely that that's positive. It's and, very and, positive. And, but also the people who have maintained the narratives and the power, mainly the financial capital and power, what then will you do with this new information? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the polarizing conversation about reparations, because though everyone lives within the system of benefit or oppression, though you might not have directly owned people, you're still benefiting from that system. So 
I'm not going to broach the reparations conversation, but I do know there needs to be some social, cultural, and financial infrastructure wrapped around bringing underrepresented populations Mm -hmm. up to a more balanced place. Because when you really break it down, policy and laws have created so much division, and now it'll take policy and law to I would say, to to add one thing to that, Mm -hmm. education about that. Uh, I mean, that's where I, I think that if people immediately hear reparations and they shut the door, yeah, because they're the like, you're not just going to get a bag of cash. Right. Um, and so earlier in the interview, you asked who all comes. Mm-hmm. We have people from every walk of life, mm-hmm. white, black, in between. Everyone and anyone is open mm-hmm. to attend a Black Soil event. We hosted, uh, we've hosted several universities and their faculty and staff and students out on these farms, and um, it's been really, really powerful for people to again, evoke the empathy. If you look different from me or you are a, have a different perspective, I wanna be able to reach across the aisle and learn from you. And so it's just a great opportunity to get people speaking and mingling and being in the same place because we're still very segregated in, in, in this town, in the state, and in this country. We sure are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been talking with Ashley Smith um, of Black Soil. Uh, the website is www.blacksoil.life. Is that, that life, that's right. Uh, and uh, it, it's really fascinating. Uh, it's sort of a, 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 a new, young uh, group, uh, and it sounds like uh, I need to go on one of those yes. tours. I'm really looking forward to it, and, so, and I'm so glad that we talked. When, we, when you visit the website, I've, I'm updating it as we speak, but we will release all of our 2020 dates mm. on MLK Day. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. So it gives me so some to get you, some you would done. want to, um, uh, p- people need to book at that point or when oh, they can put know, it on their calendar or? Put it on your calendar and you'll receive updates. Uh-huh. We do sell out, uh-huh. um, but with um, a shift towards focusing on this work full time, it enables us mm. to have more frequency. Mm-hmm where we were doing um, mainly just on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, you know, we've got 11-month-old twins and oh boy. jobs of our own, and now it's really shifting towards expansion and uh-huh. growth. So we're excited. Well, it's been delightful and, and certainly an education, and we appreciate you coming in. Thank you so much. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.